Jesus, you truly are our life. We have no good apart from you, but with you we have everything. With you we have more than we need, more than enough, more than we deserve, more than we could ask or think. It's always better than we could imagine. And there's always more for us when we think we've just run out of your goodness, of your love, of your greatness, of your glory, of your mercy for us, of your compassion and patience. There's always infinitely more to go. You, your greatness is unutterably deep with infinite remainder. We'll never plumb the depths of it. Lord Jesus, you are our life. You are all we have and you are all we need. We ask that you would be pleased with our worship today as we pour our hearts out to you. We give you all of our praise and all of our glory that you're so worthy of. We wish we could just give more. We want to give you all we have. We worship you today, King Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, I invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to our scripture reading for our sermon today is James chapter 5. We'll be in verses 13 through 20. We come to a one another that <laughs> is bound to make us uncomfortable. Not that the other ones have been that comfortable. <laughs> you know, after the very first, after the first one another commandment we did, love one another, I got a text from a church member who was watching online. And, uh, and he said, gee, thanks for starting with the easiest one. I'll let you know when I'm done and I'm ready for the next one. <laughs> and I texted him back. I said, I look forward to your report. <laughs> so these have all been challenging. These have all been difficult. But they're so explicitly biblical and they're so important and they're so needed. And today's is a big challenge. One that I would dare say probably none of us like, none of us look forward to, none of us want to do, and we all wish it wasn't in the Bible. <laughs> but it's in there, and it's something that God expects of us. James chapter 5, I invite you to please stand as we read together Holy Scripture. James 5, I'm going to read verse 13 to the end of the book, verse 20. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. 
And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's holy word for us as people. Lord, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word and bless especially now the preaching. Write the truth of your scriptures upon our hearts and let them change us to be more like Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the key features of these one another commandments that I have emphasized throughout this series is that all of them are organically connected. Each one naturally grows out of the previous one. In the last, well, uh, in these last four one another commandments, 7 through 10, we began with admonish one another. And flowing naturally from that is last week's bear with one another. And we talked about two weeks ago, we must learn how to tell each other the truth in love. We have to learn how to confront each other when we sin or when we're wrong or out of line or headed in the wrong direction. And last week we saw that flowing out of admonition, we must bear with one another We must be patient when people and things in the church are going wrong and when people and things in the church are not changing or improving the way we want or as as quickly as we would like. Rather than getting angry or getting even, we must learn to bear with one another in patient love as we strive to continue obeying all the other one another's. Even when it's hard to love difficult people, and even when people are putting us through painful circumstances, it is not easy. And last week and the week before, admonish one another and bear with one another all about how to address wrong and how to endure wrong without retaliating and without falling into sin. So that's the first key feature of these one another's. Each one seems to organically, naturally flow out of the previous one. Here's a second key feature of these one another's. It's that they involve reciprocity. Each one is a two-way street. They put obligations on the one doing the one another and on the one receiving the one another. There is a mutual give and take relationship involved in a one another, isn't there? For example, admonish one another means you should both give the admonition and you should receive the admonition when someone gives it to you. It's a two-way street. Nobody gets to be all-time admonisher and all-time admonishee. Nope, it's mutual. We admonish one another and we receive that admonishment from one another. The commandment enforces both the giving and the receiving. 
Now, this brings us to today's sermon. This is the ninth one another commandment. And both of these key features I just mentioned apply to this commandment too. The ninth one another commandment is confess your sins to one another. Amen. Right? How many people are so thankful? There's, you know what? That's only in one verse in the Bible. Thank, just look at This is a big book. God, you all... And James is close to the end. God, you almost made it to the end without making me do that. Look at that. So close. It's just, it's just one verse in the Bible that says to confess your sins to one another. But how many do you need before you have to do it? This commandment, confess your sins to one another, it grows naturally out of these previous two. When we are admonished and when we have wronged someone or sinned in some way, we have the obligation, commanded in God's word, to repent of that sin and to confess our sin to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It also involves this reciprocity, this mutual give and take. When you admonish someone and you bear with them, you must be ready and you must be eager to hear your brother or sister's confession and to welcome their repentance. You don't just have an obligation. Now hear this. You don't just have an obligation to confess your sins. You have an obligation to be the kind of person someone would want to confess to. So that's where we're going today. Got three points. The first two are about being the kind of person someone would want to confess their sins to. And then the third point is about being someone who's willing to confess your sins. And then we'll close with some advice about how to go about doing that. So let's begin. Point one. Our passage in James comes at the close of the letter. It's the last section of the whole letter. This closing section of the letter is all about prayer. James signs off his letter with an encouragement to his audience, exhorting them to pray. Look at verse 13. James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Well, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So what's James getting at here? Well, what do you do when you're cheerful? James says, You sing. You celebrate. You say so. Joy in the heart overflows in the mouth. You open your mouth and express your joy. In the same way, what do you do when you're suffering? James says, you pray. Pain in your life also overflows in your mouth. You open your mouth and what comes out is not bitterness and cursing and complaining over the pain. No. What comes out is prayer. The overflow of pain and suffering in our lives that comes out of our mouths, from our hearts, is to be prayer. Just like when you're thrilled and happy and joyful, what comes out is praise and song and delight. This is a Christian's heart 
and mouth responding to pain, to suffering. Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So likewise, when you're sick, you don't just pray for yourself. You involve others. You ask the elders to pray for you. Get the church involved. James says the proper response to sickness and suffering is prayer. And then notice the promise that's in verse 15. Verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. Why pray when you're sick or suffering? It's because faithful prayer, or as the ESV translates it, the prayer of faith, faithful prayer will be God's way, His means of delivering you from sickness and suffering. And then he says at the end of verse 16, he says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Or the old King James, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It's powerful and mighty as it's doing its work. Prayer is powerful. God works through the faithful prayers of His people to accomplish wonderful things in our lives by flexing His power and might in your behalf. And then James gives this example of Elijah in verses 17 and 18. Look what he says. He says, Elijah, now Elijah was a great prophet in the Old Testament, right? He did miracles. He was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. I mean, this is a pretty pretty impressive guy. But look what he says. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. (laughs) Elijah was just like you and just like me, James is saying. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah prayed for a three and a half year drought. That's an odd prayer request. He prayed for a three and a half year drought, and sure enough, boom, three and a half year drought. And then he prayed again, and when he prayed, boom, rain. And the crops began to grow again. What's James's point? He says Elijah isn't any better than us. Elijah was a sinner like us, and he prayed to the same God that we do. I heard a preacher say one time, there is no such thing as great men of God. There is only broken, sinful, needy men of a great and glorious God. Elijah was a great man of God, right? Well, in a sense, sure, God used him to do mighty things. But Elijah was a broken sinner just like you and me. The difference is... He cast himself in prayer upon the arms of an almighty God and expected great things from him and asked him for mighty things. And God heard his prayer. God is the one who makes prayer powerful. Not you. Not anything about you. Not how many words you heap up. Not how long the prayer is. But the mighty God you pray to is where the power of prayer is comes from. That's what James is driving at. And this is meant to be an encouragement to get us to pray when we're sick and when we're suffering, he says. So pray. 
Be bold. Ask God in faith to show himself strong and mighty in, our, in your circumstances. If the only thing we ever pray for is so-and-so's got a runny nose, <laughs> so-and-so's going through a hard time, if it's just small stuff, and I'm not trying to downplay having a runny nose or going through a hard time, but that's comparatively small to praying for a three-and-a-half-year drought. <laughs> James is saying, guys, pray for God to really use some power, not just to dry up your sinuses, but to really do something great and mighty in your midst. Pray for something huge that only God can take credit for. James tells us we should pray not just for ourselves. He also says we should pray for others. Verse 16, he says, pray for one another. Pray for one another. That's one of our one another commandments. We should pray for one another when we are sick and when we are suffering. And verse 15 promises the prayer of faith, faithful prayer, will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. We have this encouragement to pray for each other when anybody has pain in their life, sickness in their bodies, suffering in their circumstances, we're told pray. Pray for one another when you're going through it and you're up against it. Pray. And God will hear the prayer of faith, the faithful prayers of His people, and He will move in our lives in great and incredible ways if we'll trust Him like Elijah did and ask Him for great things. We rely on his wisdom. He answers in his own good time, according to his own good plan, for his own purposes, and for his glory. And we trust him to do what is right. We don't hold him to our standards, but we bow to his. He will answer our prayers on his terms, not ours. And so we yield to his wisdom and his sovereignty. But now notice that James has smuggled something in to this picture about praying for each other when we have sickness and suffering. He smuggled something in. He snuck it in on us. Look again at verse 15. He says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, there are three S words that we're supposed to pray about with one another. Sickness, suffering, and sin. Sin. Faithful prayer is used by God not just to deliver people from their sickness and their suffering, but also to deliver people from their sin. And that's why verse 16 starts with the word therefore. Since or because God uses our prayers to deliver us from sin, therefore... You must pray for this deliverance when you see one another fall into sin. And he promises us the prayers of a righteous person are powerful as they're doing their work. You know, a lot of times I remember being at camp, youth camp, okay? Way back in like early high school. And... Uh, we were it, the theme of the whole week was prayer, 
And everybody was, you know, we're teenagers. So everybody's like, no, oh, I hadn't prayed in, you know, eight years. I, you know, <laughs> no, I never pray. And, and everybody's like, oh, prayer's so hard and prayer's a struggle and I just don't do it well and I don't know what to say. I'm not good. I mean, we're all like 14, okay? And, 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 and I remember one kid just saying like, he said, you know, I don't, I don't even particularly like to pray, but I know I'm supposed to, so I guess I just got to get in the trenches and just, you know, just get in the trenches and just kind of do it, you know? I just got to get in there and do it and claw my way. And I, just, and, and I remember saying, like, 14-year-old wisdom, I remember saying, like, prayer is not like a little pistol in a trench, like trench warfare where you got your musket and your bayonet and your and it's hand-to-hand combat or something. I said, I said, prayer is not a little handgun, a little pistol you pull out to, in a trench warfare. Prayer is our weapon of mass destruction. And everybody was blown away. Oh, you're so wise. You should be a preacher. <laughs> right? Prayer's not this little... Not a, not a pocket knife and you're like trying to beat the enemy off and like, it's like trying to carve rock with your fingers. Like that's not what prayer is. Prayer is this weapon of mass destruction. When you pray, you are calling in an airstrike from heaven. I mean, it's, it, I mean the, the bombs are being lobbed on the enemy when you're praying. That's not you fighting off the enemy. That's you asking Almighty God to send legions of His heavenly host to fight for you. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies. And when you pray, you're calling in heavenly combat to fight for you. So don't picture prayer as this little begrudging little thing. We're just eking it out one little prayer at a time. It can feel like that, can it? But think about prayer for what it is and who you're praying to. So here's the main thing to get from this first point. The first thing you should do to become the kind of person someone would want to confess their sins to is this. You must faithfully pray for the wayward. James says it's the prayer of faith that will be heard and answered. Faithfully praying for that wayward brother or sister in this church who's wandered off onto the wrong path, made some wrong decisions, made a wrong turn. They're, they're involved in sin. Something's happening in their lives. The enemy's getting the upper hand, it seems like. And what we do, first step, is that we pray. We pray with this confidence. That James is calling us to. Faithfully praying for the wayward. Your heart's desire Christian. For your fellow believer is. Who's sinning and straying. Your heart's desire for that brother or sister. Is for God to deliver them. From that sin. And so you cry out to God. In their behalf. This is your earnest prayer. To God. Your deepest desire. For that brother or sister. Who's done something wrong either to you or to someone else in the church. In the midst of all your admonishing, in the midst of all the bearing with one another, your primary posture as you do those things should be on your knees before the throne. Pray with confidence for one another. Not that God will give them what's coming to them. 
but that He will deliver the wayward sinner from sin. That He will bring your precious brother and sister back. Bring them to confession and repentance. You're praying for them to be restored. That He would reconcile them. That He would change them. And don't forget, you pray that He'll change you too. Because you're praying that God will work on your heart. And He'll conform you more into the image of Christ as you do this. This isn't just praying for that person who, who needs who needs prayer, and I'm doing fine. Now remember that God is always working on us as we're praying for others. He is chiseling us and conforming us more and more to have His heart. We're growing in Christ as we're seeking to help others come back from their waywardness. God's always working on us too. We're never exempt. We're never immune. If someone knows you are praying for them and that your heart's desire is for nothing but their repentance and restoration and that you cannot wait to welcome them back into full fellowship. Someone knows that that's where where your heart is. They just might come around to trust you enough to confess their sins to you. And that should be your goal. Your goal shouldn't be to get them to confess to you. Tell me about your sin. Your goal is to be the kind of person that they would trust enough and feel comfortable enough to come to and say, I need, I need to tell you something. I need you to pray. It's not forcing, wringing the confession out of them. It's being the kind of person they can come to. That's step number one. Step two is this. After you have prayed faithfully, you must get up and pursue that person patiently. Faithfully pray and then patiently pursue. And by mentioning patience, you can already hear the connection with the eighth one another commandment from last week. Bear with one another by cultivating the virtues of patience. Bearing with one another doesn't mean sit back and passively wait for each other to stop wandering and I hope they get their act together one day. No. It means that after we have faithfully prayed for that person, and as we continue to faithfully pray for that person, we pursue them patiently and seek to bring them back onto the narrow way. And if this is our posture, this is what protects, admonish one another from becoming something that can rip our friendships apart. This is sort of the posture that goes along with how we should go about admonishing each other. This broken-hearted desperation just to see them restored and to come back to the faithful path, to the narrow way. And if we pursue them with the admonition, with bearing with one another, with prayer, if we do it in this posture, we just might be able to hold each other accountable without splitting our church and losing our friends. Now look at the end of our passage, verses 19 and 20. James says, My brothers, if anyone 
among you wanders. This is where I get the language for the second point. Faithfully pursue the wandering. My brothers, if anyone among you, this is a Christian, this is someone in your church, this is somebody at the end of the pew or on the aisle across from you, or someone who's sitting behind you, or someone watching online. If anyone among you, members of the forks, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone, who's it going to be? And someone brings him back. James says, let that person know that whoever brings back a sinner, a believing sinner, from his wandering will save his soul from death. There's only one path that leads to the celestial city. It's the narrow way. And if we find ourselves on the broad way all of a sudden, it's going to a different destination. Let that person know, whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering on that broad way that leads to destruction and how many there are who find it and brings them back to that narrow way, hard is the way and narrow is the way that leads to life and how few there are who find it, Jesus said. If you bring someone back, you will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James is echoing the words of his brother, Jesus, in these words. Matthew 18, 12 to 14. This language of going out and finding the one who is wandering. What do you think, Jesus says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Save their soul from death. Snatch them back from the brink. Now how do you think Jesus... We always say, who's, who's, that, who's that good shepherd? Right? The Gospel of John fools us a little bit here. right? Gospel of John says, oh, Jesus is a good shepherd. This is about a shepherd. The shepherd's Jesus. And, and sure, that's true. The shepherd's Jesus. But that's the Gospel of John. That's not what Jesus said here specifically. So how does Jesus leave the 99 and go get the one? How does he do that today? You. You. While you're on your knees praying, God stirs your spirit and puts a burden on your heart for that person. And then you get up. And you go and pursue. And you find that one. Because that one is precious to the Lord. And precious to you too. That goes back to the commandment, honor one another. It's precious to you too. We go out... And we find the one. Jesus uses us to bring his sheep back into the fold. James's language here of covering sins is also echoed at other places in the Scriptures. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, above all, most important, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. And he doesn't mean love covers it up and sweeps it under the rug and ignores it and never deals with it. No, 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 no. No, this is Old Testament language of covering sin. How did you get your sins covered in the Old Testament? An animal 
was killed in sacrifice and its blood was smeared upon the altar, symbolically covering your sin with the blood. You go to that person with the love of Christ in the gospel and that's what you apply to this wandering fellow believer. You don't come with judgment. You don't come with embarrassment. You don't come with I told you so. You don't come with what's wrong with you. You don't come looking down your nose. You come with the gospel. And you just say, oh my dear sister, my brother, hear the gospel. See what you're doing and then hear the gospel. Love covers a multitude of sin. An ocean of transgression can be covered by the infinite love of Christ in the gospel. And that love of Christ comes through us to our brother and sister. We bring the love of Christ and we go and we put it on our brothers and sisters. We want to cover their sin with the gospel, with the blood of Christ not sweep it under the rug. Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. You don't come to stir up strife with the wrong attitude in your heart. You come with love, seeking to cover all offenses with the blood. Proverbs 17, 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Oh, be careful. We like to run our mouths sometimes. Oh, be careful. Someone, if someone's going to confess their sins to you, they got to know it stays right there between the two of you. They've got to know that you're not going to go repeat a matter to other people. This is the second step to becoming the kind of person that someone in this church would want to, rep- to confess their sins to. We are ready and willing and eager to give someone the gospel when they confess their sins. And Paul himself pushes us in this direction as well. Romans 15.1 We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. It would please ourselves to get mad and write people off and give up on everybody and get self-righteous. No, we who are strong in our faith have an obligation to bear with the failings, the sins, the wandering of the weak and not to please ourselves. And then Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The the people in our church who are the spiritual people aren't the ones who pray eight hours and read the Bible cover to cover once per month and... Okay, oh, that person's so spiritual. I mean, it's fine. Read the Bible once a month. That's fine. Like, do all the, the so-called spiritual stuff. Paul says the people who are spiritual in the church are the ones who are going out and looking for the wandering sheep who are on the brink. If you're spiritual, you should restore 
someone who's caught in a transgression in a spirit of gentleness. The way that shepherd picks up that sheep and carries it on his shoulders back to the flock. And then Paul says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. You've got to guard your heart. And then he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what Christ does. Christ bears our burdens, our burdens of sin, our burdens of guilt, you name it. He bears our burdens. And then he tells us to go and do the same for one another. Bear one another's burdens. We talked about that in the previous one another commandment as well, about serving one another. So the New Testament pushes us vigorously in this direction. And now the third point. If you faithfully pray for your wayward fellow believer, and if you patiently pursue the wandering brother or sister with the gospel, seeking only to restore and not to embarrass and not to condemn, you just might be the kind of person a fellow church member could trust enough to confess their sins to. This ninth one another commandment tells us that this is one of the ways that we should be striving to grow in our sanctification. If we're not doing this equally for one another, that reciprocity is not there, then we're never going to trust each other. But if we're doing this for each other, if we're all in it together and we're all working on this together, we can learn to trust each other. So now, I want to finish by giving some directions on how to go about confessing your sins to one another. Now come back to our passage, verse 16. Look what he says. James 5, 16. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That you may be healed. Guys, The reason you need to confess your sins to another person and not just to God is because confession is healing. That's what James says. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you can be healed. So that you can be healed. And if all he was talking about was sickness and suffering, we would know that The healing just means if you're sick, you get better. If you're suffering, things get better. But sin is right in the middle of that. And we need to be healed from our sins as well. Carrying your sins around with you sucks you dry. It corrupts and corrodes. It's this acid that just starts to eat away. And it drips and drops deeper and deeper. And it just makes more and more little holes inside and enough of those holes open up and you think why am I so empty it's because you're a bucket full of holes that can't hold any water you're a cistern full of cracks and all the joy is leaked out and all the contentment and the fulfillment and the sense of purpose and meaning and flourishing is just gone sin's just corroded away the bottom of that of your soul and it all just leaks out It's a spiritual sickness that causes suffering in all sorts of ways beyond mere bodily pain. 
You know, in Matthew chapter 9, uh, Jesus, it's the story of the paralytic. Remember this one? Matthew 9, 1 and 2. It says, Behold, some people brought to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, why do you think they brought him to Jesus? Do you think Jesus knew why they brought him? I mean, it's pretty obvious. The man's on a, uh, basically on a bed, a cot, and they're, these four guys or however many are carrying him to Jesus, and they say, here you go, Jesus. <laughs> and then, do you think Jesus kind of could intuit? Okay, they're probably here for some, for some healing. Probably here for, okay, let me, probably here for me to do a miracle. Pretty obvious what they wanted. But what does it say? And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Get up and walk. Right? Nope. That's later. He saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And I would be willing to argue that if Jesus had stopped there and then they picked him back up, on his cot and marched him back to where they found him, he would have already been healed. Oh, he'd still be paralyzed, but the healing he needed wasn't in his limbs. The healing he needed was he needed sin to be washed away. He needed to be forgiven. Jesus did the deeper, harder healing first. Because that's when he said, because people get mad and say, oh, well, who can forgive sins? You can't do that. And he says, okay, which one's easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? To prove to you I can say your sins are forgiven and it happens. Hey, pal, get up and walk. And then he stands up and takes his cot home. Jesus did the deeper, harder healing first. The one that was most needed. We need to be healed of our brokenness inside the spiritual crippling of sin we need to be healed from. Confession isn't just healing. It's also cleansing. 1 John 1, famous passage. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Guys, too many of us, perhaps most of us, have carried around the old sin, the old burden, we haven't confessed it. We've just kept it to ourselves. We've kept our mouths shut. Maybe we're embarrassed. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to open up. I'm not sure who I can trust. <laughs> the enemy will play that chord all day long. He can play that tune till you go to your grave and you'll never get it out. Some of us have been carrying around that old junk for too long. Just too long. And you, you can feel that it's eaten away at you. When we try to cover up our own sin, it ruins us. But if we'll confess it and let God cover it with His grace and the blood of Christ and the gospel, if we'll get it out, He could begin to cleanse and to heal and to restore and to make new. 
and those wounds that we still carry around, He can make them new. He really can heal us and cleanse us. So, some concluding advice about how to do this. And these are, I have three pieces of advice. They're very short, very simple. Not simple to say, not simple to do. (laughs) First piece of advice is, obviously you can't be super intimate, deep best friends with every single body in the church. I mean, if it was a church of eight people, sure. But we're not. And you can't do this on this deep level with every single person in the church. And Jesus isn't telling you that you need to go, you know, there are announcements next week. We're going to have a line and we're all going to confess. Okay, that's not what's going on here. No, what you need to do is have some common sense. I think God has some common sense. And so we, we should have some too. We need to have a first piece of advice. We need to have a small circle of people that you can, that you can do this with. Have a small circle. Jesus had an inner circle of people that he could do this kind of thing with. Have a small circle of people that you're most deeply connected with. Be good friends with, his, with everybody in the church. But cultivate this deep kind of relationship that is strong enough to support this kind of confession to one another. Have a small circle of people you can confess to. And the second thing I would say is this. Have one person in that small circle, or if it's not someone in the small circle, at least have somebody, have one person, that one special person that's your person. Have that one person you can confess absolutely everything to. You and that person have this agreement that I will, I will tell you the deepest, darkest, deep down thing about me. And you will tell me, and we will trust each other enough to keep it here and to not condemn, but to love and give the gospel. Have somebody that knows you that well. God knows us that well, and we should confess to God, but have this person that you can do this with. For me, back home, it was my best friend back home, and we did. I just said, you have permission to look me in the eye and confront me about anything you want. You can ask me the most difficult, embarrassing, hard question you can think of, and I promise you I'll tell you the truth. And then I'm going to do it to you, and you tell me the truth, and it's just us. And we know each other, we trust each other, we love each other, we are friends forever, (laughs) and we're going to give each other the gospel. You need somebody like that you can do that with. It's not easy to build that kind of trust and friendship. Find somebody and begin building that kind of friendship and bond. Personally, I recommend it's not your spouse. I mean, you can tell your spouse whatever, but personally for me, I I needed to have another man in my life, a friend, a brother in Christ that I could do this with. That's what helped me. You figure out what helps you the most, but for me, my experience, I recommend it's not someone that you live with. Not a spouse, but a friend. Find a good friend. Someone you can be real with and raw with. Last thing I'll say is that, yes, we should build deep and close and intimate friendships with a few people in the church that we can confess to. 
and that we can maintain each other's trust no matter what. You aren't expected to do this with every single member, like I said. Pursue friendships with everyone, but invest especially in that close inner circle and then identify that one special person who will hold you accountable and give you the gospel when you sin. This is an essential step to becoming the kind of healthy, gospel-centered church that God wants us to be. It is not simple. It is not comfortable. It is challenging. It is biblical. And it's in God's Word. And if we will do this, we will continue taking these steps to do the one another's, we will be on our way to that healing and cleansing that we need. And we will be an authentic, open, honest, non hypocritical church that's centered on the gospel and that's real with each other. The world needs that right now. They're looking for something. But show them the kind of church that God calls us to be. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Every week you come to us with more and more powerful truth. You, your word is relentless. It challenges us every time we open it up. But I thank you that you have given us your word, that you've told us how we should live for you. And I pray that you would give us the kind of heart that we've talked about, this confidence in prayer, this love for one another, this willingness to be faithful in prayer and to pursue each other patiently, tenderly, with the gospel, not with judgment. And help us, Lord, to build the kinds of friendships and relationships that are necessary to support this kind of one another Christian life. Make us the kind of church that's authentic, that's open, that's real, that we can actually show each other our brokenness and not feel ashamed, but actually trust each other enough to give one another the gospel so that we can be healed and cleansed. Would you change our hearts, change my heart? Let it start with me. And then, Lord, change our church transform us little by little as we keep coming back to your scriptures and coming to you in prayer. Change us to be the church that Christ has called us to be for his name's sake, for his glory, and for the good of our brothers and sisters. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.